0: on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life.
1: Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man Lecture 8 Total Depravity and Social Order A participant in a BBC Radio 4 religious programme some years ago stated that the doctrine of total depravity no longer has any credence in the Church and that only a few religious sects now adhere to it. Her point is well taken. Indeed, we could go further than this. Few of those who do give assent to the doctrine understand it or recognise its implications either for soteriology or social theory. Yet the Christian doctrines of total depravity and salvation and the Christian doctrine of social order are closely linked. Of course, the doctrine of total depravity does not teach, despite popular misconceptions to the contrary, that the non-believer is incapable of thinking or doing anything that is in itself good or virtuous, though it is true that God is the source of all goodness and that without the grace of God man is incapable of any good. Common grace is therefore the source of all virtuous thoughts and actions of non-believers. Rather, what the doctrine of total depravity teaches is that the fall affected the whole of man's nature, including his intellect or reason. It is this teaching that man's reason or intellect is corrupted by the fall that distinguishes the Reformed doctrine of total depravity from the Roman Catholic doctrine of the fall, which by contrast, holds that man's reason is essentially uncorrupted by the fall. The Reformers rejected the nature-grace dualism that underpinned the Roman Catholic doctrine, which limited the fall to man's spiritual condition, while leaving his reason uncorrupted by sin. The Reformers, following the logic of Augustine's doctrine of original sin, taught that the fall affected the whole nature of man, including his reason. Total depravity, therefore, teaches that in all his thoughts and actions, the virtuous as well as the immoral, the non-believer thinks and acts in rebellion against God. Obligation to God, said Robert L. Dabney, and I quote, covers all of every man's being and actions. Even if the act be correct in outward form, which is done without any reference to his will, he will judge it a shortcoming. The ploughing of the wicked is sin, The intentional end to which our action is directed determines its moral complexion supremely. As the Apostle Paul put it, Whatever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14, verse 23. Those who do not live by faith in God live in denial of God, in rebellion against Him. By their whole lives they deny the God who demands their submission, in the whole of their lives. Their very acts of charity and virtue, which are good in themselves, are put to the service of the idols they choose to worship, instead of the God of the Bible. In the whole tenor of their lives, in every faculty of their being, and every sphere of their lives, they deny in all they think and do, the God who demands that their lives be lived in His service and for His glory. Those thoughts and works that are good in themselves, therefore, are used by non-believers to deny God and glorify idols. The thoughts and works of those who deny God, refuse to repent of their sin and submit to his word, are often in themselves virtuous and charitable, but the disposition of the hearts of such people is one that is totally turned away from God, who is the author of all good, and the only one who is good according to Jesus. See Matthew chapter 19 verse 17. The non-believer is dead in his trespasses and sins and cannot without the grace of God exercise faith or please God. In other words, the desire to be as God, defining good and evil for oneself without reference to God and his revealed will for mankind, colours the whole of fallen man's outlook, the whole of the way that he thinks about life and the world, and in everything he thinks and does he seeks to think and act independently of God. The whole orientation of his life is one of denial of God, and in all spheres of life this fallen orientation determines the way he lives. He sees the world and all things in it independently of God, and seeks to think and live independently of God. His interpretation of the whole of life is a denial of God. It is not merely that the corruption of sin manifests itself in his morals and spiritual life. His will is in bondage to sin and therefore he uses his reason to deny God. His defection from God is total. It is in this sense that man is totally depraved. The doctrine of total depravity, therefore, has profound implications for a Christian worldview. It affects not merely our view of man as an individual soul, his slavery to sin and inability to serve God, that is to say his lack of righteousness in God's sight, but also, for example, our understanding of how we should raise and educate our children, how we should as a society provide welfare for the needy, how we should organize our society politically, and how we should deal with criminals. In short, it affects how we understand the faith as applying to the whole of life. Total depravity is a foundational doctrine for the development of a consistently Christian worldview, which is a particular view of the origin, nature, meaning, value and purpose of life based on the biblical doctrines of creation, fall and redemption. The biblical doctrine of the fall presupposes the creation and a particular view of the creation. It is not consistent, for example, with a theistic evolutionary perspective. And the Christian doctrine of salvation presupposes the biblical doctrine of the fall, Our understanding of the fall, its extent and implications, will have a decisive role in shaping our understanding of salvation. Medieval Roman Catholic theologians, for example, made a distinction between the image of God in man, which they believed consisted of his natural ability to reason and exercise free will, and the likeness of God, which they believed consisted in his original righteousness in God's sight. This original righteousness or likeness of God was not considered part of the natural condition of man, but a supernatural gift of God's grace, a donum superaditum, bestowed upon Adam in addition to his human nature. It was this donum superaditum, the supernatural gift of original righteousness, that was lost in the fall according to this Roman Catholic doctrine. As a consequence, man's communion with God was broken, but the image of God consisting of man's reason and free will, although weakened by the fall, remained essentially uncorrupted by sin. This split the life of mankind into two different realms, the realm of nature and the realm of grace. Redemption takes place in the realm of grace, not the realm of nature, which is largely unaffected either by the fall or redemption. This denial of man's total depravity since the fall means that human sin is not pervasive, that it does not affect the whole of man's thoughts, words and actions outside of Christ. In such a perspective, the salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross does not affect a total transformation of the natural life of man by the grace of God. Rather, it is a kind of restoration of the donum superaditum, that is to say, a supplement needed to complete man to bridge the shortfall between man as he stands as the product of nature and man as one who is righteous in God's sight. In this perspective, man is able of his own will and abilities to accomplish much of what God requires of him intellectually, morally, politically, culturally, etc., but he is unable of his own abilities to achieve a state of supernatural righteousness in God's sight. God's grace is needed, therefore, in order for man's communion with God to be restored and in order for man to be able to understand those things supernaturally revealed in the book of Scripture. But the book of nature is open to all men who, through the use of their natural abilities, are able to come to a proper understanding of it. In this perspective, man is not totally depraved, that is to say completely fallen, but only partially fallen. He is able, by his natural abilities, to achieve much, but needs the grace of God to bring him to perfection. This perspective is associated with Roman Catholicism, and particularly with Thomas Aquinas and those who have followed him. According to Aquinas, and I quote, The constitution of human nature is neither destroyed nor diminished by sin. The gift of original righteousness, that is to say the donum superadditum." was totally lost through the sin of our first parents. The natural inclination to virtue, finally, is diminished by sin. For Aquinas, original sin consists in desire that is not subject to reason and, to sin, says Aquinas, is nothing other than to fall short of the good which benefits one according to one's nature. Furthermore, Man's nature, says Aquinas, and again I quote, is impaired by sin more in the desire for good than in the knowledge of truth, unquote. Nevertheless, and again I quote, human nature is not so entirely corrupted by sin as to be deprived of natural good altogether, unquote. Consequently, for Aquinas, quote, grace does not abolish nature, but perfects it, The gift of salvation, therefore, does not totally transform man's life and culture, but merely perfects it. Man's natural life and culture are not deemed to be in need of complete transformation by the grace of God, and this is because they are not perceived as being completely fallen. The curse of sin has not corrupted them. Man needs saving from his sin his rebellion against God and his unbelief, but this is seen as having a narrow application relating to the realms of faith and morals. The fall is seen in narrowly religious terms, and those areas of life considered to be part of nature are deemed to be religiously neutral areas of life. In this perspective, the Christian faith consists of a synthesis of nature and grace, with the latter completing the former. Except in those areas perceived as religious in the narrow sense of the word, salvation in such a world view will not affect the social order of society. Since man is not totally depraved or totally fallen in every aspect of his life and retains his natural abilities intact, for example, the intellect or reason and free will, his culture and social order will not be transformed completely by the grace of God in Christ. It is only man's spiritual condition that needs to be corrected. From this we see that our understanding of the nature and extent of the fall limits and shapes our understanding of the nature and extent of redemption. If the fall is total and affects every aspect of the life of man, then redemption must be total. It must redeem the whole life of man. There can be no area or sphere of human life or thought that must not be redeemed and therefore completely transformed by Christ. If the fall is partial, if it affects man's moral inclinations and his faith in God but not his intellect, his ability to reason correctly, then the natural life of man is not corrupted in the whole of its orientation and redemption is only partial. It does not transform the whole of man's life and culture It merely perfects nature. This view of the Fall, that Adam's original righteousness was not an aspect of his human nature but a donum superaditum, a supernatural gift of grace in addition to man's essential nature, is a distinctively Roman Catholic doctrine. The Reformers rejected the Roman Catholic view of the Fall and taught what came to be known as the doctrine of total depravity. Abraham Kuyper stated the Reformed Doctrine in the following way, We have been taught by the word of God that sin not only spoiled the will and misdirected the mind, but also darkened the intellect. Conversely, that palingenesia, regeneration, not only converts the will and transforms the mind, but also uniquely illumines our consciousness. Those who believe receive not only another impression of life, but are also reoriented in the world of thought. Nevertheless, it is clear that a perspective very similar to the Roman Catholic understanding of the nature of man and his fall into sin is adhered to by Protestants today. Most Christians in the West today are dualists. They see life as split into two different orders, Spiritual life, which corresponds to the sphere of grace, and secular life, which corresponds to the sphere of nature. Nature does not need redeeming because it is not fallen. Conversion affects a transformation in the spiritual realm. But it does not essentially affect the realm of nature, secular life. One can carry on living life pretty much as one did before conversion in the realm of nature. The concern of the church is with the realm of the supernatural, grace, and therefore congregations are often warned not to get tied up with cultural concerns, with things happening in the world and with organisations. Their duty is to be at church as much as possible, attending to the spiritual realm. The consequence of this dualistic worldview is pietism, which has now triumphed as the dominant form of spirituality among Protestants. Even among those who consider themselves to be reformed and therefore who accept the strictly theological dimension of the doctrine of total depravity, the implications of this doctrine for the whole life of man in those areas that fall outside soteriology and ecclesiology are practically neglected. When it comes to the education of their children, politics, social order, economics, art and culture generally, The faith is largely seen as having no relevance. It is certainly not deemed to require a total transformation of these areas, which are seen as neutral from the religious point of view. Practically, reformed believers on the whole today have adopted a worldview similar to that of Roman Catholicism. The fall is not seen as having affected the whole of man's nature. His natural life remains largely unaffected by his fall into sin. Grace does not transform nature therefore, it merely completes it, and the natural life of man, his family life, political life, economic life, the upbringing and education of his children, remains unchanged, unaffected, untransformed by the word of God, since grace is seen as being relevant only to the spiritual and supernatural aspects of life, for example, faith, church life, spiritual gifts in spite of the retention of the verbiage of the doctrine of total depravity in the reformed churches, the truth really is that the doctrine is no longer understood, nor its implications appreciated. It is confined to the realm of the spiritual and is seen as having no relation to the realm of the secular. Arminianism is the dominant theology among Protestants today, of course, and Arminianism, like the Roman Catholic view of the fall, denies man's total depravity since the fall. This denial is sometimes implicit rather than explicit. Some committed Arminians will pay lip service to the doctrine of total depravity, but the nature of the Arminian system of doctrine, particularly the Arminian doctrines of prevenient grace and free will, effectively nullifies the doctrine of total depravity. According to Nicholas Grevinchovius, and I quote, Adam, after his fall, retained a power of believing, and so did all reprobates in him. The Arminians at the Synod of Dort taught that, and again I quote, Adam did not lose the power of performing that obedience which is required in the new covenant, namely, as it is considered formally, that is, as it is required in the new covenant. That is to say, he lost not the ability of believing in Christ or of rising again through repentance from sin, But why have reformed churches embraced pietism with such enthusiasm? I suggest it is because they have unwittingly embraced a basic premise of both the Roman Catholic and Arminian worldviews, namely, that man is not completely fallen away from God That outside the saving grace of God in Christ, man is not totally depraved. The Christian faith, therefore, relates only to a narrowly defined spiritual realm. It ceases to be a religion to live by and becomes instead little more than a syncretistic mystery cult comprised of elements of a Christian soteriology, a view of spirituality that is basically a modern version of Gnostic dualism and a secular humanist worldview. Of course, Reformed churches, especially those that subscribe to the tulip formula, will deny this. They hold to the doctrines of grace, perish the thought that they should have adopted a basic premise of Arminianism and Roman Catholicism. But as Jesus said, and I quote, Wisdom is justified of, that is to say, vindicated by, her children, unquote, Matthew chapter 11 verse 19. Why do so many Reformed Churches deny the connection between faith and culture? And why are we to flee from the world that Christ redeemed and commissioned us to claim in his name into an irrelevant ghetto that denies any duty of the Christian to reform or transform the culture in which he lives? Why was the Great Commission separated from the cultural mandate by Reformed believers in the 20th century, when historically they have gone together and been seen as inseparably linked, two sides of the same coin. By denying the necessary link between religion and culture, reformed believers have opened the door to the Arminian worldview. They still adhere to the terminology of total depravity, but the doctrine is a dead letter in practice. They do not believe that man's fallen nature, his defection from God, manifests itself in the totality of his life that is to say in every aspect and sphere of his life and culture if they did they would not send their children to be educated by non-believers to be taught according to the basic premise of secular humanism namely that the world and everything in it exists and can be understood independently of the god who created it and whose creative will gives it its meaning and purpose Man's depravity does not in their eyes manifest itself in the spheres of education, medicine, science, art, politics. In these spheres, the natural life of man is sufficient. It does not need redeeming. Grace does not transform man and his culture completely. It merely perfects nature. In this sense, most modern Reformed believers are practical Armenians. Their life and witness to the faith of the Reformation, which they claim to espouse, is in practice the antithesis of that proclaimed by the Reformers. Yet when culture is abandoned by Christians, and man's natural life outside of God is allowed to develop consistently according to its own principle, that is to say the principle of original sin in which man determines for himself what constitutes good and evil without reference to God's word, Christians throw up their hands in horror and bewail the terrible state of the world. But why? Culture is largely the external form, or as T.S. Eliot called it, the incarnation of religion. If we accept that people can be educated properly without reference to God by those who deny God and seek to live consistently in terms of such a denial of God, the result will be that God is eliminated from our culture. The denial of God by the scientist and the triumph of evolution as the explanation of our existence is merely a symptom of man's desire to live consistently in terms of his own fallen nature. The deplorable state of immorality in our culture is merely a symptom of the same desire. Likewise, if we eliminate God from our understanding of welfare and medicine, the result will be massive welfare abuse and abortion on demand. Is it really so difficult to see the connection between religion and culture? By their denial of the necessity of a Christian culture, Christians have opened the door to multiculturalism and the repaganization of society. And their answer to this problem has too often been to retreat from the world rather than to preach the whole gospel to the whole creation and thereby bring the redeeming grace of God to bear upon the cultural life of the nation. But in adopting the same pietistic perspective, those who claim to be reformed but deny the link between faith and culture have become implicit Arminians, promoting an Arminian social theory that has helped to open the door to a world without God for the next generation. That is to say, a culture in which God is relegated to a narrow sphere of life revolving round church meetings and personal piety and in which the gospel is seen as having no bearing on the greater part of man's life. Education, art, economics, welfare, medicine, law and order, vocational life are all seen as religiously neutral spheres of life. The result of this worldview has been the decline of our society from a culture that acknowledged and honoured God, however imperfectly, to a society that blasphemes and dishonours God with virtually every breath that it takes. This decline has now entered the exponential phase of the curve And as a result, our nation stands on the brink of Gehenna. Our understanding of the fall will affect our understanding of redemption. If man is totally depraved by the fall, his sin, his denial of God, and his insistence that he will determine what good and evil are for himself, will manifest itself in the totality of his life and works, in every sphere of his life and culture. In this case, man's redemption must be equally total. It must embrace not only his individual spiritual life, but his culture as well. If man is not totally depraved by sin, if the fall is only partial, his sin will not manifest itself in the totality of his life and works. In this case, the natural life of man will not need to be transformed totally by the grace of God, but only perfected, The gospel will be considered a spiritual addition to the natural life of man, a donum superaditum, and, to use the words of one preacher, and I quote, primarily concerned with the world to come, unquote. But the Bible does not teach this. Rather, it teaches that man's fall into sin is total, that without the grace of God, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. See Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, chapter 8 verse 21, compare Romans 1 verses 18 to 32, 3 verses 10 to 18, 8 verses 6 to 8, Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 19, and Titus 1 verses 15 to 16. Man's natural life, in the state of sin therefore, does not need to be merely perfected. Redemption is not a spiritual addition to the natural life of man. The natural life of man needs to be transformed totally by the grace of God. Redemption is a complete recreation of man in the image of Christ. If any man be in Christ, says the Apostle Paul, and I quote, He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And if the believer in Christ is a new creature... This new creation must manifest itself in the totality of his life and in his culture, which is the external outworking of his religion. We forget this important doctrine at our peril, and when we do, our society must suffer the awful consequences of our neglect of the gospel and of our cultural mandate to bring all things into subjection to Jesus Christ. Of course, it is often not until the next generation and those that follow it that the full implications of this neglect become apparent, and this to some extent helps to explain the terrible consequences of the transgression of the second commandment, in which the iniquities of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Man's fall into sin is total. No area of his life is unaffected by his sin. Because man in the totality of his life is a sinner, he seeks to deny God and suppress the knowledge of God in all spheres of life. His sin, therefore, works itself out in the totality of his culture. Likewise, the salvation that Christ accomplished for his people by his life, death and resurrection is a completely new creation. It must, therefore, work itself out in the totality of man's life and culture, This fact has profound implications for our view of social order. Our society will produce either a culture that is moving towards the new creation in Christ or a culture that is moving away from this, a culture of death. A society that is moving towards the new creation in Christ will seek to order its life according to the standards of righteousness revealed in God's law. It will produce a culture that honours Christ and a social order that conforms to God's law because it recognises the comprehensively fallen nature of man's natural life, that is to say man's total depravity outside of Christ. God's grace in Christ as the only remedy for this condition and God's law as the only foundation for social order and peace in a fallen world. Where this is rejected, society will deteriorate into a culture of depravity and death which is what Western society today is becoming. This declension of our society into a culture of depravity will not be halted until the church once again recognises the full extent of man's fall into sin and therefore the full and complete nature of the redemption that Christ has accomplished for the world and until the church once again starts living in the light of this by seeking to transform the culture in which she lives by applying the light of God's word to every sphere of human thought and activity, we must preach a total salvation to a totally fallen world. The nature-grace schema of the Roman Catholic Church, which is so popular today even among Protestants, will not help us here. Rather, it will hinder our work for the kingdom of God because it is a compromise with the philosophy of the world. The work of Thomas Aquinas was a self-conscious compromise with the philosophy of ancient paganism, Aristotle. According to Professor David Estrada, Thomas Aquinas attempted to reconcile Aristotelianism with Christianity. He believed that Aristotelian philosophy was, in the main, true. Key Aristotelian concepts, such as the idea of substance and accident, are used in defining Christian doctrines, including the doctrine of the Eucharist. Among other things, Thomas accepted the entire Greek position with regard to the soul. On the other hand, he correctly affirms that the knowledge of faith is supernatural and cannot be demonstrated by human reason. Yet according to Thomas, theology is to refute the opponents of faith and elucidate and make probable the articles of belief by the aid of philosophical thought. For the reformers, the Occamists successfully wrecked this synthesis of Thomas Aquinas, whereby nature and reason led through unbroken stages to grace and revelation. Aquinas' theology was a hybrid, a syncretistic form of belief that stood in opposition to the biblical worldview grounded in the doctrines of creation, fall and redemption. These doctrines form the foundation of a Christian worldview. Each of these doctrines was a scandal to the world of ancient philosophy, and they are still a scandal to the world of modern secular humanist philosophy and science. But they are inextricably linked. The abandonment of the biblical doctrines of creation or fall will alter our understanding of the nature of redemption. The result will be a truncated gospel, devoid of the ability to transform the whole life of man. Christ came to save the world, not merely to pluck brands from the fire. The redemption he accomplished on the cross was for the whole life of men and nations, and therefore his great commission to his disciples was and is to bring all nations into obedience to his word. The church must abandon the dualistic nature-grace schema and pursue a biblical understanding of the nature of creation, fall and redemption. God's grace does not merely perfect a largely unfallen nature. Rather, it transforms completely the natural life of man, which is totally depraved and in need of the grace of God in each and every sphere of life. The grace of God in Christ is a grace that claims the whole of man's life, including his family, his politics, his art, his business. No area of man's life or culture is religiously neutral. It either serves Christ or it denies him. End of Lecture 8 These lectures are produced by the Kuiper Foundation, a charitable trust in England, registration number 327537, supported financially by means of voluntary donations from those who believe in the cause for which it works. The Kuiper Foundation is not a business. It makes all its literature, films and lectures available free of charge on its website as PDF files, audio files, and QuickTime movies. Nonetheless, in order to produce the literature and audio files we make available, and in order to progress the work of the Foundation further, we need financial support from those who believe in the cause for which we are working. If you have found these lectures to be useful, and believe in the cause that the Kuiper Foundation exists to promote, please consider supporting the Foundation financially. You can make donations on our website at the following address, www.kuiper.org forward slash donations. More information about the work of the Kuiper Foundation can be found on our website at www.kuiper.org under the About Us page.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended. From sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.